this morning, uh, we are back to Babel. That is what I have entitled my sermon this morning, uh, back to Babel, uh, and focusing on two words, uh, let us, I think they're in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 11. We're not going to reread the passage this morning. Uh, We looked at it last week, this amazing story, the Tower of Babel, uh, where uh, the descendants of Nimrod, who are the sons of Noah, and they're building this tower on the plains there in Mesopotamia, which is now not too far from modern-day Iraq. And it is actually in modern-day Iraq. And it's it's a fascinating story. And there's so many ways to approach this passage. And so this morning, I want to look at it in a little bit different way. And we'll get uh, jump right in there in a minute. Uh, Back in the year about 2000 or so, we were living in uh, southern Alberta in Canada. And we used to go camping uh, a fair bit in the mountains uh, because we were right alongside the Rocky Mountains. And and, uh, just beautiful country. We live not too far from on the Canadian side of the border, which is... uh, um, Glacier National Park in, in the States and Waterton Park in Canada. It kind of shares the border. And so we would, we would travel all over that area. And one year we decided we would camp on the American side. And so we camped at this place uh, near something called the Hungry Horse Dam, the Hungry Horse Reservoir. You're going to see it there on your screen. And this is up in, if you're kind of looking at a map, up in northwestern Montana, Kalispell's down here, Columbia Falls, the park is here. And, and it's right down here on... Uh, uh, what is the south fork of the Flathead River, uh, a big dam, you see that on your screen, a big dam that started to be built in about 1948 and finished in 1953. It's very, very large. It's 564 feet high, and we toured this facility. And so it was, it was pretty cool, and it, and it was a cool opportunity for our kids to see something like this. And, and uh, it's 564 feet high, Across the top, it's, it's over 2,100 feet wide, or, or long, excuse me. And in the top, it's 34 feet wide at the very, very top of the dam. And we were way, way, way down in the bottom. They take you all the way down, and they show you the, the internal workings of this thing. Uh, 23 men died in the building of this dam. And it was, it was quite a marvel of engineering construction at the time. They used even a new type of concrete for this with this, for this dam, because it's in, you know, the northern part of the states and close to Canada, it's freeze-thaw cycles, and so they used a special concrete with air bubbles in it to, to allow for an expansion and contraction and water to freeze and thaw and those kinds of things, and, uh, you know, technology, the first time this kind of concrete technology was used in the building of a dam. So we're down in the very bottom of this thing, and our, our guide, he says to, to me, he says, how how wide do you think the concrete is here down at the bottom? And I didn't know. I didn't have a clue. I saw how wide it was at the top, and I thought, you know, maybe it's 100 feet or 80 feet or something. And he said, if you were standing in, you know, just inside the goal line of, of a football field, and then your son was standing at the other end of the football field just inside the goal line, that's how wide the base of this dam is. It's 320 feet of concrete. And I just thought, well, with, you know, nearly 600 feet of water above us, I'm pretty happy that it was that wide. Uh, You know, just an incredible marvel. And it it is not the largest dam in the world, really, by any stretch, but amazing, uh, none uh, just the same. 
You know, I stood one time, I, I went to Malaysia once and stood and toured the, the Petronas Towers in Kuala Lumpur. You're going to see that up there. You'll probably recognize this famous tower, maybe from some movies, those kinds of things. And I stood in that center section and you can, you know, it's mostly glass and you can look out over the city. It's a long, long way up. And if you, if you can see there, it's only about halfway up, really. Uh, and, it, and it's a amazing, it's an amazing marvel construction. And of course, you've probably been in big skyscrapers and seen some of these, you know, stunning things that, that man can do. Or literally amazing things that, that we have been, you know, gifted to be able to do because we're creative people. Such capacity, unique vision, ability, and craftsmanship, you know, often combined to leave us with amazing architecture and art and things like this building that you're seeing on the screen and you know, music and poetry and literature and all of those kinds of things. It's, it's a gift to be able to view them and see them. And that is why when we look at the Babel story, okay, and we hear God say in this passage, let us go down and shut down this construction project essentially. When we see that the project stops and, and we understand that after their language is confused, that word babble is really what it means. It means confused. We need to understand what is really going on here and understand that God is not in any way concerned, really. It's not about the building project. God's not concerned that this great big building is some gonna, somehow going to impinge upon his you know, capacity and creative and, you know, are they going to look at that and not, you know, lots of amazing structures are still standing. Think of, the, think of the pyramids in Egypt from antiquity and think of, you know, some of the amazing marvels that we see around the world. Some have tried to read into this text here uh, this very idea that God is concerned with this building because it, what it represents and that's the problem and it needs to come down. I, I, I just think that, you know, even, it, you know, we'd see some of this kind of thinking and language when the World Trade Centers went down. People compared it, you know. I just think it's incredibly, it is incredibly misplaced logic, and I would call it misspent mental energy, <laughs> to say the least. Again, this is the, the second week we've looked at this passage, and I've alluded to these deep truths, and there's just so much more here today to understand and learn, and, and, I, and I hope I use that word carefully. I, I hope that we get inspiration from this, actually, and hope. Okay? One thing we didn't unpack much last week, I alluded to it briefly, but is these, are these two words, let us. Now, I would ask this question, does this sound familiar at all to you as we've been looking at Genesis? And it should. It is the same way that he, God, initiates the creation of man made in him, his image. He said, let us make man in our image. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26. A great deal of scholars, uh, I would say nearly a consensus, agree that this is a reference to the Trinity, the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All there at the beginning of creation, we've mentioned that before, there at the pinnacle of creation when God creates man in his image, and then there all the way through the story of Scripture, before it all, in it all, before it all, through it all, and here in chapter 11 at Babylon. Let us. So why is this significant? 
I would suggest that there is a significant issue at stake here that really gets, uh, really, I would say it really gets its feet, uh, you know, in the New Testament with the arrival of Christ, um, the gospel, and ultimately the coming of the Holy Spirit. But it is all throughout Scripture. It's illustrated from the very beginning of our human story. The unity of the Godhead was there at the beginning. The issue is unity. They, these descendants of Noah, in the plains of Shinar, in Mesopotamia, near Babylon, they tried to find it in conformity. One language, one city, one people, protected, fear perhaps driving it, dominance over others, whatever the ultimate reason, it failed because God stepped in. Now, Again, I mentioned this last week, and we're going to talk about this a little more, but Pentecost is the great reversal here. And it is, it is only, um, but only is the true sense of biblical unity found in that con- complete connection to the triune God, the, 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 the Godhead, as we call it, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the let us aspect of this passage. The love of, Paul talks about this in in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter, at the very, very end, chapter 12, verse 14, he describes it this way. He says, you know, the love, may the love of God the Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. He pulls them all together in that descriptor. God is a God of love. Jesus, you know, is, is, the, is the word of God made flesh, full of grace and truth, John says, in the beginning of his gospel. Then you have the, the truth and, the, and the, you know, the peace and all of this that, that brings unity and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost, again, the great reversal of Babel, where the Holy Spirit falls and men speak in tongues and hear their own language. The great reversal. Many look at this passage and wonder, though, uh, what aspects, you know, as we talk about the, the Trinity, what aspects or aspects of God's character are on display here? Or he says, we got to go down there and sort this out. Essentially, you know, what is, if I can use this word towards God, and I'm, I, I'm a little uncomfortable with it, but what is his motivation behind it all? What is really so dangerous, why is it so dangerous for, this, for them to do this, to continue to be allowed to build? It almost seems, and again, this is such weird language, but it almost seems from the text that God is fearful of what man will be able to accomplish if left to complete this tower. What will they think of next, essentially, he says. What ultimately will they be capable of? Now, the reason why I've used words like foolish and odd and uncomfortable using that language is we need to remember that God is unable to act in any way that is incompatible with his character. Unable to. Okay? And if Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all here, and God says, let us, then we have something here. We have action here that is based on that reality. The action taken is based on the love of God, not his fear or anger. The action here is taken based on the ultimate grace that is found in Jesus. The action taken here is a result of the true fellowship and peace that the Holy Spirit brings us. This is profound The unity of these three, the three in one, is the unity that mankind actually needs to satisfy and satiate the need for control, to trample our fears, and defeat our deep individualism. And it's only found in what these three bring. Their attempt 
to be independent will and ultimately cuts them off from all of these things. Confusion of their language forces them apart and causes them to need the true God of the universe. There's an irony in this. They become dependent again. They need him again as they spread out. The God of love, the grace of Jesus, and the fellowship, grace and truth of the Holy Spirit accomplished this. This is, let us in action, in agreeing goodness, if you can picture that, the agreement that creates this, really it's goodness here. And, and folks, we need to be on the lookout for this in our own lives, for this kind of independence and pride that can rise up in us and create this wedge between us and God. It's never a good thing. We need to remember this and learn this as we think about these people. Another issue this passage alerts us to is the natural desire, or we'll phrase that differently, the desire in our natural state to conform or form ourselves around those same natural and sinful desires. Control, okay? Notoriety. Let's make a name for ourselves. That's what they said. Fear, you know. They wanted safety, perhaps, from who knows what and where and, and why. Dominance, perhaps. Uniformity here. Monolithic. That's just a big word that means one solid big rock, basically. Think of it that way as this unbreaking and unbending and un, you know. It, it, it's one. One monolithic cultural dynamic that they were trying to create. All these really do is then, as they attempt this, is cascade down into more of these issues and, and, and situations. More fear, more strife for dominance between people and people groups. More distaste for anything different. People who are not like us, don't sound like us, eat like us, vote like us, sing like us, dress like us, think like us, and on and on and on. It just cascades and rolls down. Unity True biblical unity through the love of God the Father, the grace of Jesus, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit not only is repelled and disgusted by that type of sin, it gives its very life to ensure that there is another way. Hear that again. The Trinity is not only repelled and disgusted by that type of sin, it gives its very life to ensure that there is another way, another alternative. Which ought to and should in the true gospel, in a true gospel dynamic way, result in the love of diversity of others not like me. Love of other cultures, others who worship different, love of these people who sound and look different. It is not conformity to my way, it is unity and diversity to the way of Jesus. You could say it's conformity to Christ. Babylon reversal. Color of skin, language used, traditions, tribalism. You know, think about rich versus poor. Structures built around, you know, appropriateness, denominationalism, political affiliation, etc. None of these have any place in or part of what the gospel is. The unity that exists in the spirit with the love of God or as the result of any kind of encounter with the grace of Jesus. Unity and diversity. But there is still a more beautiful truth in this story. And again, this is that hope I, I think that is here, that I pray that it's here, and that it also brings encouragement to you. 
this attempt at independence resulted in a greater need for dependence and the effort to you know, contain the presence of the gods is what they were trying to do, actually resulted in them and us really learning that God's presence is actually, well, it's everywhere. There is no place that you or I can be scattered, sent, or run to that his presence is not there. This is so ironic as you line it up against their their attempt to, you know, house or to reach or to control or to gain access to God, however you, you see here what's happening. Think of the psalmist when he says this, Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of dawn, you are there. If I settle on the far side of the sea, the inference is you are there. Even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. All of these things are what, what are called uh, in biblical language, it's a merism. It means as far as I can go this way and as far as I can go that way, as high as I can go this direction, as low as I can get down here, and everything in between, God, you are there. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light becomes night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. We learn this as we encounter the God of the whole universe. Over in the New Testament, Peter is preaching, he says, you, you can't house God in buildings you know, built by human hands. It's the same principle here. They wanted to stay in one place for all of their own selfish reasons. reasons. How could the one who created the universe demanded theirs and our righteousness, how could staying in one place be anything but limiting or, or essentially you know, bringing him down to our level? He will not be brought down to that level. There are many ways around, uh, there are many ways around us that we can be you know, harmed. Like, it's just a reality. You know, natural things that can happen. Like, look what's happening with the weather patterns these last few days and some of the disasters. Unnatural things can happen that, you know, we used to call them acts of God. We don't really know what they are. Uh, how they happen, spiritual attacks, you know, those kinds of things. You know, we can have bad weeks like I just had. We just are generally powerless in and of ourselves to, to protect. Go, the Scriptures command. That's the essence of what happened here. Go into the world and multiply, scatter, and, you know, go. Pick this up again in, in Genesis chapter 12 when Abraham has commanded the same thing. You know, your descendants will be as sand in the seashore and stars in the sky and blessing will come. Blessing is supposed to come from the going and the scattering. Go, the scriptures command, and I will be with you. That's what Jesus says in the New Testament when he gives us this great commission to go. And I will be with you. That is the promise. That is the protection. That is the power of God. That's how it works. The gospel, the obedience to the commands of it, and the ultimate command to go and spread it are intrinsically tied still to the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, all tied to going. Going. And ultimately, the filling of the earth, the whole earth, every tribe, tongue, nation, this is the language from the New Testament, Matthew chapter 24, verses 14, when all those, tribe, tongue, nation, when all those have heard of Jesus, had an opportunity to 
turn to Jesus, then the end will come. And the result is that all are there in eternity in glory. And apparently, apparently, language is not an issue up there. <laughs> As they are all seen, the picture is they're all seen worshiping around the throne. And if there are different languages being spoken, we don't know what it is, people presume, but it doesn't seem to be an issue. But the central thing to take away from all of this, I think, for us, is the continuance of a command. The centrality of God's plan for humanity that no human ingenuity, philosophy, scientific capacity, mental acuity, none of that can stand against the advance of the kingdom through the holistic ministry of the gospel of Jesus. I mean, those are big words, but it's true. As we let, you know, go out and do gospel work. None of those other things stand a chance against what the gospel can do. Not that they're not important. They just, don't, they just can't do what the gospel can do. So when as a church we talk about discipleship, about making disciples, being our prime directive, if you will, and when we talk about in our mission statement about taking the love of Jesus with us wherever we go, when we state that we value our neighbors and the nations and that we practice hospitality with all who come into our lives, all of these are reflective of the great command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and the great commission, go into the world. It's all reflective of the great command, the great commission to love God and love people. All unified under the banner of obedience and not resisting that primary calling. So let us step into the unity of the love of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Let us understand that as we do that, the lonely, the broken, the hurting, the ones having a bad week, <laughs> the, the literal weak among us, all have a place here under the banner of the gospel of Jesus. Let us consider, as the scriptures teach, how to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Let us not just babble about the gospel. Let's do it. And let any of you, and this is where I want to tie this all together in, in hope and encouragement. I, I just hear me this morning. Any of you who don't feel as though you belong, who perhaps have been told you are not good enough, clean enough, white enough, rich enough, pretty enough, skinny enough, tall enough, male enough, strong enough, not ready yet, too young, too old, too single, whatever lie you have been told and believe or rumor that has cut you to the core and is affecting you still, whatever wound holds power over your very being, you belong here. There is a place for you. There is diversity, fulfillment, and unifying beauty in the gospel of Jesus. We all have a place here. I mean metaphorically here. Because we're not here, but we're together. We have Jesus. All of us need to remember that the unity that existed in the Godhead from the beginning and the love of God, the grace of Jesus, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that unity is confirmed and proven over and over in the cross of Christ and its efficacy to cleanse us from all our sin and unrighteousness. Babel teaches us that no measure of human conformity or the idea of fitting in, no measure of what matters, no design of man holds any merit compared to what God has in store for those who surrender to his love 
and mercy. That is the good news. Let's pray.